Jay Miller here. This is the Pit Show, where normally you can catch me talking tech or productivity or knowledge or information or anything that might come up as it happens. And this week, I have a very, very wonderful guest, someone who I met recently that as we've been talking and getting ready for this show, I am just more and more fascinated with and want to learn more and more about uh, the host of a former Riverdale podcast, a former college radio (laughs) DJ, uh, currently a career library professional in the Pacific Northwest, an internationally recognized speaker, and someone who knows their way around user experience, equity, social justice, and information studies and a Vespa, which I really want to talk about later, because that is like my dream vehicle. Uh, Cecily Walker, how are you doing this wonderful evening? I'm fantastic. How are you? You just I'm... blew up my spot with the Riverdale thing. <laughs> I'm going to find it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've not watched Riverdale. My wife watches Riverdale. At least she did. I don't know if she still does. So I'm going to find it, and we're, you're going to have some new fans. So, uh, Well, it's it's been it, we've been off the air for we're going on our second or third year that we haven't done the podcast i don't know i've lost track but um the there is no archive the archive is on my computer (laughs) (laughs) all right well then maybe i won't find it i'm not i'm not gonna go that far uh, let everybody know what you're all about what you do and uh all that fun stuff yeah so i'm cecily i'm a librarian um who works in the uh pacific northwest uh, I say Vancouver. I, I try not to tell people exactly where I work, but like there's, like, there is like no other black librarians named Cecily in the Pacific Northwest. So it's really not hard to figure out where I work. Um, and I have been really interested in technology and how people use technology and how people use technology to help them make sense of their world, whatever that world looks like. Um, ever since I was, I don't know, like in undergraduate school in the mid nineties. Um, and I, um, moved to Canada and, uh, I had been working toward a, a, a master's degree in Africana studies at a historically black college in Atlanta. Um, and then I moved to Canada. Um, and then I realized that, you know, a degree in African-American studies really isn't going to go that far. In, in Canada. And uh, so I decided that, you know, the best thing for me to do as an immigrant was to get a degree from a Canadian school, um, because it'll make it a lot easier for people to hire me. Um, and so I was looking around, I found out about human computer interaction, um, the HCI program <clears throat> at the University of British Columbia at the time was in the commerce department. Um, and the commerce department was something like $20,000 a year. Um, the library school was something ridiculous, like a year and you could just take once you took like your core classes then you could take classes at any other faculty you wanted so I basically got a human computer interaction degree for way cheaper Um, and I started out doing UX work user experience work had experiences where I was working for companies that were literally taking advantage of minoritized people with predatory lending Um, I worked for a very very large multinational bank um, and the first project that I worked on was for um, a predatory lending program. Um, and, you know, it just kind of weighed on my heart that the, I'm building systems or I'm helping to design systems, the interfaces for systems that would prey on my friends and family back home. 
Um, and so I left that, uh, went to work for a software development company doing user experience work, um, came up with a new uh, interface for one of their mom and pop software packages for accounting, did such a great job. Uh, but um, the person who was in charge of the, the product, the product manager was like, this is really great. It looks really good, but you made it so easy to use uh, people. We're not going to be able to sell technical support contracts. And that was when I knew I'm not cut out for the corporate world. That's just, I'm, I'm too much of a hippie. You know, I'm too much of a Gen Xer. I'm too much of a damn the man, save empire kind of person. Um, and then I went to work in public libraries and for the most part, public libraries kind of suit me. But it's still, for me, all about how making people, helping people find their way and make sense of the world that they're in, whether that world is virtual or whether that world is physical. I mentioned this uh, when we first started, when we first got on the call, and I said that like my my goal with each of these conversations is to have a unique conversation with someone that I I honestly just don't know if I would ever have and that intro alone like completely made me want to throw like ev- all of my notes out the window and just be like let's talk <laughs> about that stuff because there's so much so much there yes there there's a lot of a lot of issues with the cost and whole education system as as a whole mm-hmm. in many ways so yeah there's a whole lot of problems with with the education system as a whole on top of that we have issues with companies making decisions that are better for their bottom line than yeah, are better for, for the sure. users and i think we yep. actually see that a lot nowadays in uh the the big the fang companies the the major popular facebook Apple, Amazon, Twitter, Netflix, Google, that whole thing, uh, where we see like a lot of the social media platforms that are out there are designed for you to stay addicted to the content that you're receiving, whether it's good for you or not. Um, the other side of that is also finding ways to get you to spend money for the product. And if you can't spend the money, well, then they will take your data and sell it. Therefore you become mm-hmm. the product. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it is amazing that we become okay with it once we're a part of that system. And as, as I tell my friends, the benefits are too good for you to grow a conscience. And that is a thing. Yeah, that, but no, like, I, I Absolutely. And I I am glad that like, I will say I work for a billion dollar company in my day job. I chose that billion dollar (laughs) company for uh, several reasons. And I will say that not every decision that is made from that company, I agree with. But I do believe that we provide a way that doesn't, in your words, prey on minority individuals, or that try to keep people hooked into an ecosystem where we're making constant funds from them. And and that is one of the reasons why I chose that job. But I would also be lying if I didn't say that the fact that my healthcare is amazing wasn't also right? a good factor. I mean, you have to make it, it really, you have to make those kinds of choices. And that is really unfortunate, especially if you're somebody, I mean, I know people hate the word woke. I don't care, whatever. But if you're a person who is relatively conscious, conscious, um, and wants to make conscious choices, 
I don't know how you it's it, to me, it just feels so deeply unfair that we have to make those kind of choices. Like do we have to make choices about, you know, how we want to spend our money, how we want to spend our time because time is money. Um, and that being attached to your health care. Like I, I, I grew up in the United States. I'm from Georgia. You know, you, you may or may not be able to hear that in my accent, but that's one of the reasons I'm not going back. It's because the fact that, I have to have this job, a job that I hate because I don't have enough health care to, you know, look after myself or my family. It's just, it's just soul draining. And it's just, I can't, I can't get behind it. And, you know, the Canadian healthcare system isn't perfect, but, you know, I'm so glad I have it because the first time I had to go into the hospital for something serious and I woke up after the anesthetic and my then husband said, well, it's time for us to go. I'm like, what do you mean it's time for us to go? Don't I have paperwork to sign out? And he's like, no, we just, you just go. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that you have to, you know, make those choices as, as Americans, it just makes me so upset. And I wish I could get everybody, all my friends and all my family and like do like a modern day, um, you know, Harriet Tubman and just bring everybody up in like a new underground railroad. <laughs> I, well, I will say I hope that 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 first time in the in Canadian healthcare system wasn't due to a Vespa accident because again, v- Vespa be my dream vehicle. Um, I will own one before I die. This is going to happen. Um, but I came I, from a Honda. I came from a Honda. The Honda was great, but it was also a creamsicle. It was literally orange and white, and you know you can't you can't Mac on a creamsicle, um, but you can Mac on a black. Vespa was sparkly black paint. <laughs> so we were talking anime before before we started recording. Have you ever seen the anime Fully Cooly? I haven't. So it's buck wild. Like it is completely off the rails. I would just go in. You might want to have a drink, smoke a joint. I don't know. You might want to do something <laughs> before you watch that show. But uh, put that in the show notes. I will definitely check it out. Absolutely. But it is, we talked about my, my favorite anime. Um, well, one of them, Cowboy Bebop. Fooly Cooly is also in the top five. Uh, but one of the main characters there drove an like orangish red Vespa. And ever since I was like, you know, I, I think I could rock a Vespa. Like, I, I think that's me. We just paid the it's car pretty off today. Sweet. So, uh, um, there you go. Oh, it's a sign. It's yeah, a sign. Second vehicle. Here we go. I'm, I'm claiming it. <laughs> <laughs> you put it out in the into the universe you claim it and it will come to you <laughs> or so they say <laughs> absolutely so other than other than vespas and a desire to to be in the pacific northwest because that is also I'd, I'd love to be in seattle vancouver area that's that's my kind of weather but we also kind of connected on this idea of of knowledge and like information management and all of that stuff. And I knew I had to get you on the show when I checked out the blog. And the first thing that I saw was a blog post that said how I take notes. Um, and then also the fact that we met in the craft uh, Slack channel. So shout out to the craft folks. Uh, so as as an information professional, what's going on with all these apps? Like, it seems like we get a new one every week and they all kind of do the same thing and they're all like not great or perfect, but, right, you know, we, we claim them to be the next, 
you know, Evernote of, you know, early 2000s Evernote, not the, like the old Kanye, but not the the new. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I started out with Evernote. I loved Evernote. Uh, The thing I loved the most about Evernote, going back to the, the conversation that we were just having about when you become the product. Um, and the thing I loved about Evernote, Evernote is that I could give them money and they would, they said, we will never sell your information. Um, and for me, that was a big deal. Um, one of the things that we have to, we meaning library workers in Canada, in this part of Canada anyway, um, we are, we're bound by something called the Library Act. So we can't really use a lot of cloud software that is based or that has servers based in the United States. So there was a lot of things that a lot of productivity or cloud-based apps that really would have made my job a lot easier, but we couldn't use them. Um, and I found that really frustrating as somebody who came from corporations when, you know, I if I saw a tool that I wanted and somebody said, yeah, just go tell so-and-so and they'll go and buy a license, you'll have it by this afternoon. Um, and it's not like that when you work in a public library. Um, but it's, you know, the idea that, there was a company who was making information or making a product that I could use on my phone, on my work computer, on my laptop, on my iPad, and everything would sync without me having to work at it. I mean, that for me, that's the reason why I was a Mac user and still am a Mac user for such a long time. Um, because for the longest time, you know, you got a Mac, you turn it on and everything just worked. And Evernote was very much like that. But at some point, I don't know, like they started selling socks, really expensive <laughs> socks and like really expensive backpacks. And I'm like, I don't, I don't need any of this. Just, just give me a sink that works, make it so that I don't lose my information. Um, and then they started reducing the number of, you know, devices that you could sync with, or you could have Evernote on and, I just kind of left them. And then I started looking around for other products that I I could use, but not really use because we're not supposed to use them at work. Um, And all these products kept coming along. Like there is Agenda, there is Bear. Um, Ulysses is actually still one of my preferred writing tools, but nothing that would really help me manage information. And we had like a, a knowledge management system that the city that I live in, um, the city that I live in, like, makes everybody who's part of the municipal government use. And it's just clunky and it's just awful. And it looks like something like Windows NT from 1998. And it's just awful, but we have to use it. Um, and so I, I'm always looking for a more elegant solution that gets out of my way, that allows me as an end user to feel way smarter than I actually am. Um by making it easy and frictionless to do things. And when Craft came along, I don't even really remember how I found out about Craft. I think I found out about Craft in the the dense discovery newsletter, maybe. And so um, I knew that I was going to be going to school. I had tried Notion. Notion just makes my head hurt. And the less said about it, the better. And you know, I, I tried craft and it was just like you open up a document, and you start writing when you have an idea that you want to connect to something else. You type a certain key combination and it'll automatically create the page for you. And then if you want to go back later and fill in that page, you can. 
Um, but you build a system the way that works for you. You don't have to try to, you know, work within something that is feature rich, but those features are so overwhelming um, that you feel like you can't get anything done. Um, and talking about Notion again, you know, I really would like to be able to use Notion, but Notion just makes me feel stupid. And I don't want to feel stupid when I'm paying out money. Um, that's just not on. So, you know, craft is perfect. It's something that makes it really, really easy for me to like capture my thoughts. Um, and it's really easy for me to be able to trace my thoughts as they develop. And as somebody who's thinking about going back to graduate school, as somebody who's had experience with graduate school, um, you know, being able to finally capture my ADD brain and actually see where I was going with an idea has been hugely beneficial for me. So, you know, that's why I wrote that post on my blog about how I take notes, um, how I try to, I wrote a, a, an article about um, just personal knowledge management in general. Um, and I've been a way more prolific just since discovering craft than I've been in the, oh God, how old is my blog now? I started blogging in like 1993. So in the however many years it's been since 1993 that I've been blogging, I've been more prolific in just the last couple of months of using craft than I have in many, many years. I, I think that the the issue that I've had with most knowledge management type applications has always been around the idea of it either doesn't do enough or it tries to do too much. Uh, similar to what you were saying with a company that won't be mentioned for everyone's mental health. Um, <laughs> there are tools that have the ability to do things and you're like, this is great. I love this. Just keep doing this. And then they say, well, now we're adding Zettelkast in, or now we're adding infographs. And we're like, wait, but no, no, I don't, I don't need that. Like, and most people don't need that. And the people that do right. need that, by all means, like they need to go find their own tool because this is becoming feature rich, which is good for some folks, but in other ways, it makes me anxious because I feel like I'm not using the tool as much as I should be, or I'm yeah. not using it in the way that the developer intended for the tool to be used. And, you know, you talked about that security angle, and that's something that has always had my heart in terms of like plain text, because if, if the system just runs on my machine and it doesn't have to sync, or if it syncs over iCloud, which is, you know, I trust it more these days than I did before in terms yeah. of reliability, but I definitely trust it more than Dropbox and, um, you know, Google Drive in terms of privacy and security. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a bunch of just text documents is always going to be something that I, I tend to like, but I also understand that it can only do so much. Like you can, right. you can do Markdown, you can do all those things, but at some point, I don't want to have to try to memorize a language or recall how do I, you know, how do I create in Markdown a linked image? <laughs> you know, that's, I always mess up like, okay, do I put the, the links on the outside and then the image right. reference on the inside or do I do it the other way around? Like, I don't know. Um, so 
I love that craft in many ways gives us the ability to do that. It's like, hey, if you want to reference another, you know, document, you can do that. We're going to be sensible about it. We're going to show every single document that this is referenced on at the bottom so you can quickly jump to it. But we're not going to show you a giant graph with a bunch of, you know, markers pointing to this and this and this and oh you use this word 37,000 times in these other 15 articles and all of that so I don't pe- people tell themselves they need that and if you're a productivity journalist you know if you write about productivity all day or you're dealing with some very very long-term interconnected knowledge uh yeah focused research then maybe you do need it but in most cases, it's a feature that justifies a price tag. And right. in my opinion, I would pay the price even if the feature wasn't there. Because knowledge, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is important. Especially now. Like for me, craft is craft is like the context key. It's like the context home. When I have an idea, when I have a thought. It actually doesn't usually start in craft. It starts in something like drafts or it starts in my notebook. Usually it starts in my notebook so I can sketch out the idea. Mm-hmm. Then when I'm actually ready to to tuck that information away, provide links, provide context, provide all of the things that I'm going to need when I want to go and you know find more information about that thing, that's when it goes yeah. in craft. And then I know yeah. it's there. Yep. And I don't have to think about it anymore. And I've even had the ability now what what sold me on craft was the exportability was it's in there and when you're ready to get it out of there you can if you have a list and that list needs to become tasks in a task manager you can do that and it's built in when you have something like one use case that i do that i don't think anyone else that i know of is doing is i will make a presentation uh, like I, when I give a talk, I will make my slide decks using Markdown in craft using the rich links and everything else and the images and all that. And when I'm ready to present, I'll export it into a text bundle. Mm-hmm. And then a text bundle is basically a folder. But I can yeah. open that folder in Dexet, which is a Markdown to presentation right. tool. And I have right. my slide decks and it's there. And it's the exact same information. So then I can share my craft link with my audience and say, you can follow along my speaker's notes, all the stuff that I want to put in the presentation, but it won't fit on the slide. It's all there. If I update my talk in the future and I want someone to go back and, you know, they want to go back and reference it, they get the most up-to-date information and they can just take it with them wherever they want. And that has made my job so much easier because again, the home, the home context of that information never changes and it just sits there in craft and I don't need to map it out to a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's such a small thing, but it's such an important thing. And I wish that the idea of interoperability, I don't know, at some point when, you know, computers were hard (laughs) um, and very few people had access to things Um, doing things with like text files was the norm Um, and then at some point there are all of these really proprietary uh, document formats that people that companies tried to 
insist that this was going to be the standard. Um, and none of these things worked together. None of these things talked to each other. Um, it was really difficult to try to get something out of one format into another. And if you did, you'd get all these weird garbagey um, nonsense characters. Um, and I'm really, really glad that there are, you know, there are tools like Ulysses, like Craft, like Bear, like BB Edit. You know, BB Edit is still one of my perform. I mean, I've been, I've, ha- I have had a license. This is how old I am. I have had a license from for BB Edit since BB Edit was first released. Um, and you know, I'm I'm Facebook friends with the main developer. Um, I have been, you know, I'm I'm loyal when it comes to like my software. And so, you know, the fact that people and companies are getting back to the idea that, you know, we pay a price for this convenience. We pay a price for, you know, having thing and having things in the cloud. Um, and that price is privacy, that price is security, that price is portability. And I'm glad that a lot more software development companies are taking a more ethical look at this that says, even if you are using our storage solution, like Kraft says, although they do make it possible for you to back up to like iCloud or something like that, or if you're using something like Obsidian, for example, and you back up using GitHub. Um, I'm glad that there are a lot more companies that are saying your data is your own, your information is your own. Um, and when you decide that you want to leave us, we are we really hope that you don't. But if at some point you decide that you want to leave us, um, here's your stuff. You know, we'll make it easy for you to get it. Um, you know, it's I don't know. It's 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 just something that I'm I'm always really really fascinated with, and I'm really I'm really interested in talking to people. Like, how do they manage that feeling of, you know, yes, you know, I know that basically, and I'm going to use probably a politically incorrect term. Feel free to edit it out, but yes, I know that I am a data slave, but I get so much out of this in return. You know, it, I I feel like we're at the point where we were before personal computers became cheaper and widely available to more people where, you know, everybody was like, this is the internet is the wild, wild west. And I'm going to go it. I'm going to go out and I'm going to get my piece of it. And I'm wondering if we're on the, the precipice of a very similar shift with privacy and people understanding that, you know, they don't have to be, they don't have to make another company rich off of their information that they decide that they want to share widely with people. Um, I kind of hope that we are. I kind of hope it becomes the norm where if you download something like, you know, uh, Office 365, for example, um, you know, that if you decide that you want to be able to use not just Microsoft Word, but you want to be able to take this information and just pull it into Ulysses and not have to strip out any formatting before you start to work with it. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll see a lot more of that sort of thing. Um, A lot more data democracy, so to speak, where you aren't locked in and that, you know, you can take your information and your data and do with it whatever you want, rather than having to do with whatever the company thinks is best for you. Two things on that. The first one is I want to say, you just said you've you've been with Barebone Software 
before it was just bare bones. It had it had some meat yeah. and skin on it. So um that that's just my little quick dad joke there, but <laughs> the other side of that is I do think that companies are coming around to the idea of app privacy. Um, obviously, we know that that's been in the news with like Apple and Google both making big uh, decisions around, you know, web tracking and, and kind of what can be harvested from you from one site to another. Also with the app nutrition labels that right, Apple's pulled right. out. Like all of that stuff I think is great, but then we also see the amount of backlash that comes to that. And it's not from a matter of Apple didn't say that you couldn't do it. Apple is saying your users will be notified when you choose to do it. And that to me tells us that I, I as a company grows, they have to figure out the price point to make it understandably usable and i think right. the internet has outscaled that um, i think mm. there were less than a billion people using the internet on a daily basis you could say buy my product for a hundred dollars and people would say well i'm one of the few people that actually have to use a tool like this i totally understand the hundred dollar price point i'm going to pay that money but now people will get mad if an application is a dollar ninety nine, and I don't want to, I don't want to blame the end user, but I do want to understand why is it that we choose to go with the larger company instead of the indie developer? Why do we choose that for ourselves in? response to well it's free and i like free or it's cheap and i like cheap versus this is an application that has my best interests in mind or this is an application that the developer just wants to make this application and and that is coming from someone who has built things because i think they're the right thing to build not necessarily thinking about how to monetize it from day one yeah. You know, I think it's just, I think it's human nature to want to feel like you're getting over on somebody. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll tie it to why I, you know, I don't even own a car. My, my modes of transportation are my bicycle or my Vespa. Um, and one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I bike or I take my Vespa everywhere I go is because I, I get to have fun in my commute every day. Um, and because I get to have fun, because I get to arrive at work in a really good mood, because I've, you know, either been out in the fresh air and had some amazing interactions with people on the street, um, or, you know, just I've all of the, the anxiety and feelings of weariness that I might feel about what I might face when I'm going into the, the library that day have largely been eradicated. I kind of feel like I'm getting over on society because I am coming in under my own speed, um, under my own power um, and, and doing it the way that I want to do it. And I think it's, I think it's human nature to want to feel like that you're getting over on people. And so if it means that you're going to be a data slave, um, you know, because you can get something for free, it makes you feel like that you're, you've just 
you're you're a grifter that you have just run the biggest scam in the world but I just wish people would realize that they're the ones being scammed. Um, and I also think that it's something that comes from the fact that, you know, on the internet, um, you know, in the days of things like Napster or any sort of peer to peer or illegal sharing that we all know still goes on, um, despite <laughs> what, you know, um, copyright uh, companies or, or companies that hold copyright try to do, this stuff still goes on. I think it's just part of that whole free spirit, free speech, everything goes on the internet. We can't regulate things that exist. Um, and that we've seen as a result of like what happened in Washington, D.C. and on January 6th, that that free spirit, everything goes, my free speech above everything else has a really, really dark side. And we really, as a society, need to start thinking a little bit more critically about how we engage with these companies and how we are going to require and force these companies to be better data citizens, how they're going to be better corporate citizens um, and how they're going to relate to, interact with, um, and responsibly manage the trust that people have put into them in exchange for quote unquote free. Um, you know, I don't think that we're there yet, but I think that, that that awareness is coming because as you start to see more people like you, um, you know, doing this podcast, people like me and other librarians that I work with who people wouldn't ordinarily think of a librarian as being, you know, something like, you know, a personal data hero. But, you know, one of the things that we we teach people, like when we're teaching them how to sign up for an email address or we're teaching them how to use cloud products, one of the things that we often tell them is like, you know, you think that you've deleted something, it's not really gone. This is how you make sure it's really gone. So when you have like regular, unassuming, non-evil people who actually have expressions in their faces, unlike Mark Zuckerberg telling you that this stuff is happening, um, I think that it's going to be a little bit more widespread and people are going to start paying a little bit more attention. So you mentioned something that I think is a good way to wrap this up. Uh, you mentioned the perception of what is happening at in, a, in and around a library. And we've seen some of we've we've heard you know people that listen to this show i'm i'm hoping i have like the smartest and brightest audience out there um we've heard of some of the different initiatives like kind of the audiobook rental and multimedia rental and if you're learning about this for the first time yes there are several libraries that will actually allow you to rent um ebooks audiobooks uh, multimedia videos, movies, that whole thing. Just about every library will do that. I mean, unless they are like, you know, a cart and buggy library in East Bumble, you're, yeah. you're gonna, you'll have access to that stuff. And some even have their own maker spaces, which I yep. am very jealous of because our local one does not. Um, I have to drive downtown, which ain't nobody going nowhere these days. So um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there's, there's this perception of the library of it it holds the books it, it it's the place where the where the knowledge on on paper or on digital is stored and i can get access to it if i want to but only for a, a week or two but as you mentioned you're doing 
so much more. Uh, you're creating digital areas for digital literacy, which is something that I think a lot of our society did not get. Obviously, they didn't get it in school because at that time, the internet wasn't a thing or it was a very young thing. Um, even when I went to high school in the early aughts, like it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Like we had a computer class, but we didn't have like internet literacy. We didn't have like, these are the things that you should and shouldn't put on the internet. So I definitely appreciate that the, even though we think the library it hasn't changed since, you know, 1995, it has, it has grown with us. And, and can you uh, wrap up this show by kind of going into a little bit more detail about some of the things that you have gotten to do as a library professional? Um, well, I, 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 you know, I graduated from library school in 2004 <clears throat> And, um, you know, the Internet has always been there. Libraries have always been libraries and library workers have always been technologists. I mean, you know, if you think about, you know, how you check out a book and you look on your book and there's a barcode, right? Well, barcodes have to be read by computers. Those computers have to be programmed by somebody. Um, and if you look at a, a library book, a physical library book, and you look at the spine, there's a call number and that call number is basically just like a finding it's like an algorithm it's a finding algorithm that helps you know exactly where something is going to be put on the shelf so technology has always been a huge part of libraries um, but i think that because a lot of this technological work was done by women and this is the the legacy of melville dewey the person who the dewey decimal system is named after um uh, a very very well-known misogynist racist sexist jerkwad basically um but he 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 basically hired women because he thought women were more tractable um and that they were more trainable and that they wouldn't give him a lot of lip so that he could do all of these kind of amazing things about how to structure information and make it more widely available to people. Um, but I think it's because that, you know, the library profession is something like 84, 85% uh, female um, and, and, you know, similar, similar percentage um, are, are white people. People just think of it or they don't think of it at all. It's like the air. You, the only time that you're conscious of the air is if there's a funny smell. Like if, you know, we have here where I live, we have fire season and you don't really become conscious of the air until, you know, you can actually smell something on the air. It's ubiquitous, but you just don't notice it. And I think that libraries suffer from a very similar problem people don't see how much technology that we have to deal with every day. Um, and they don't see, you know, that we are, um, you know, maybe we're struggling just like you, but a lot of us aren't. And a lot of us really do know our stuff and we know what we're talking about, but because we're a bunch of women, we get, you know, the short shrift or we get discounted. Some of the cooler things that I've been able to do in addition to just, you know, being invited to go give, keynote speeches halfway around the world in Melbourne, Australia, because I'm a librarian who's Malby. Um, you know, some of the other cool things that I've been able to do is, you know, being able to build a repository that holds um, 
community history stories from various communities throughout the town that I live in uh, to explain their relationship to race, to culture, to the changing demographics of the town that we live in, um, because everything is just shifting so much and shifting so fast. Um, you know, people getting an opportunity to explain what Canada means to them and, you know, in the ways that that's a good thing, the ways that that's a bad thing. Um, being able to, you know, work very closely with uh, the the person who was in charge of setting up what we call our inspiration lab, which is our digital creation studio. Um, a lot of libraries have maker spaces where, you know, there are 3D printers. You get to go and do knitting. You get to go and like rent out, um, you know, cooking equipment. Um, but we decided that we were going to do a digital creation space. And then later we decided that we were going to allow people because we got a generous grant from a company um, once the Inspiration Lab opened, we decided that it's just a natural fit to allow people to be able to check out musical instruments from the library. Um, so, I mean, those are just some of the really cool things that you can do. Um, and, you know, even if you're not somebody who's into producing your own podcast, even if you're not somebody who's really into, you know, making your own record, because you can actually do that in the studios that we have at the library where I work, um, you know, you can just come in sit for a while, read a newspaper, read a magazine, and nobody's going to bother you because libraries are one of the only places in the world, in our society, where we are really not trying to sell you anything. You can just come in and be, you know, you can't, you can't go and hold up. I mean, you can, you shouldn't, but you, you can't really like go and hold up in a Starbucks for like eight, eight hours. Um, I know people do, but I know Starbucks, you know, you can't do that without having to buy something. You don't have to buy anything to go into a library, um, you know, and it's that very socialist, very democratic idea, ideal, um, that this is a space that is open and welcoming and belongs, not just open and welcoming, but belongs to everybody because we've been dipping in your pocket. We just make it invisible, invisible. You know that, um, but you know, you, this is your space too. And you are entitled to the space just as much as anybody else. You're not going to get special treatment because, you know, you have a few extra zeros at the end of the digit in your, on your bank account um, than somebody else. Um, you know, you're going to be treated um, relatively equally um, as anybody else. And that is something that I can't think of anywhere else that you will that you'll encounter that kind of idea except for in a library. And, and to me, that's the proudest thing for me because it helps people encounter people, ideas, a side of life, a, a perception that they may not be able to encounter any other way. Um, you know, I remember as a child hearing things like, you, you know, you open a book and the whole world opens up to you. It's, it's corny, but it's also really true. Um, you go into a library and just sit for a little while and you will see a side of your city that you never thought you would see, that you couldn't really see anywhere else because anybody can come in. They don't have to pay. So to me, that's the thing that keeps me going. That's the coolest thing that I get to do every day. Um, you know, when people come in and, and we show them that, you know, we have a product that allows them to read newspapers from all over the world for free 
and you can read it at home or you can read it from your phone or you can read it from a, a desktop computer that we've made available. Um, that access is something that I care deeply about. And I think that's the coolest part of my job is that my job is making sure that you've got access to stuff and we'll help you get through it. And by providing you that access, maybe it'll just unlock something in yourself, your personal self, in your brain um, that will show you something different and lead you to something different. And that's pretty darn cool. Folks, I tell y'all I'm selfish when it comes to picking my guests because I talk to like the most interesting and engaging people. And I'm so glad that I had this opportunity to talk with you, Cecily. And before we start wrapping up, I want to remind everybody the show is only halfway. Well, maybe half, maybe a quarter. I don't know. I don't know. It's not, it's not going to be my show much longer. Uh, in a few minutes, oh, Cecily no. is going to be interviewing me. Uh, answer, so I'm here to answer whatever questions uh, that Cecily might have. But Cecily, thank you so much for you're welcome for just like having this conversation i i am flat like no cap i did not realize the the depth of the conversation that we would be having and where it would be taking us and all the wonderful places and i'm happy about every single spot that that we touched and that we covered and every single topic and uh, even more now i'm going to do my best to get that best but it's going to happen um do it i want to see a picture when you get it oh okay <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but before we jump into the after show please let everybody know where they can find out more about the stuff that you're doing um, you can find me at my website, which is cecily.info. That is C-E-C-I-L-Y dot I-N-F-O. And yes, I know the dot info domain is really for spam, but I've had that domain for over a dozen years. I'm not about to change it. Um, and you can, um, no, I'm not going to mention Twitter because my Twitter is locked down. Um, there are reasons for that that I won't go into on the show. But if you're interested in just sort of keeping up um, with me, start at my website um, and send me a note. You know, I like email. I like uh, actually communicating with people. We're off to the after show. Cecily, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, I'm here for oh, it. Am I supposed to start now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, there's the the rules are I will answer whatever questions you might have for me. They can be about anything and everything. This is your show to go as little or as long as you want. But from this point on, the show is yours. So one of the things I'm really interested in is I'm always really interested in talking to uh, Black people who work in tech. Um, a friend of mine um, runs... Um, a very well-known tech podcast whose name is escaping me right now because I'm old. Um, um, and, you know, he's talked to a lot of different people and I'm always really interested in people's uh, people who are underrepresented in, in a particular profession, what their path to that profession was like. And maybe other people who have listened to your show more often than I have already know this story, but what was, what was your path into getting into tech? And as a, a minoritized, a racialized person in tech, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered, whether it's good or bad? I think that, well, we'll, we'll start with the past. So I, 
I've always kind of had like technology as like, I'm going to work around this, but not really know how. Um, I thought it was going to be hardware. I went to college for six months for like hardware engineering and then realized that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, at that, neither hardware nor college, apparently. So I dropped out, joined the military, and that got me the tech background knowledge. I was a system admin in the, the Marine Corps. And then when I got out, I continued to be a system administrator for a, a very corporate corporate business. Uh, in, in the words of my boss, it is better to look like you are busy than to have accomplished anything. Uh, so kind of, <laughs> those kind of uh, jobs. And uh, for, I kind of realized I didn't want to do that, but it was also around that time I kind of got into the whole productivity space and got into podcasting and listening to a lot of podcasts and doing those things. I realized because of my military background and my history in, uh, I guess, knowledge acquisition and public speaking, I kind of had a good sense for marketing. So I hopped over from tech, went into marketing, and then started using my ability to program and code and tinker and stuff to start automating myself out of a job to where it it got to the point where I was doing more work away from my computer than at my computer. So mm. at that point, I, I had given a talk at a conference um, and I had had a developer advocate, you know, sit down and we had had lunch and we were talking and they were like, if you can move to Oakland, I have a job for you. And I was like, I cannot move to Oakland. That's just not going to happen. Um, but they said, no, really, you should consider getting into DevRel. It, it's, it sounds like something you'd be really good at. And uh, last year when when the pandemic hit, I had, I had been looking for uh, just a s- straight up software engineering role and with the goal to eventually get into developer advocacy, but I had always been told like that was the path you went, you know, college CS degree, junior developer, senior developer, developer advocate, like kind of in that, that pathway. And I actually had a few friends that said, Hey, we know that you could do this. Now is the time. This was actually around the same time that, um, you know, our brother, George Floyd, unfortunately Mm -hmm. passed and a lot of people were starting to uh, really think of, well, I shouldn't say really think about what they were doing, but really appear to be thinking about what they were doing. And uh, a friend of mine, that's an important distinction. That's an important distinction. Very much so. (laughs) But yeah, my friend was like, yo, this is, this is, if you're going to get into it, this is a great time to do so get in, get paid and start doing this. And I, I huddled up my friends and I said, Hey, I want to do this. Can y'all help? And I had so many people that were just like, I will put your name out there. You, there is no place that I won't tell people to hire you. And funny enough, the people that did hire me, the company I work for now, it wasn't any of the technical work that I did. It was the fact that I had been podcasting for six years and I had tinkered with all of these different things and I had wanted to build things and I had built things. And they said, we want someone like that on our team. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, my story is I would I would not say a common one, but it is one that gives me hope and inspires me to let people know, like, you don't have to go that traditional path. And 
honestly, as a as a black man in America, the traditional path is kind of pitted against you as is. Right, but right, right. We as black folk are actually, in my opinion, optimized for a career in developer relations. Just the way that our culture is, you know, pushed in mainstream you know, culture, like black culture is American culture, in my opinion. I don't yeah. know if it's Canadian culture. I'm, I'm not, I know Drake's there. Like that's, that's, that's well, my I, and, and Drake is interesting. I feel so bad. Drake is interesting because Drake made like a lot, Canadian culture is very white and very raucous. And so when Drake came up, Canadians were just like, this, we don't, this is not us. And then all of a sudden he was like hugely successful. And it was like, Drake, come back home. You know, it's, it's like, like we really can, this can be us. We can, we can ditch Alanis Morissette and come to and become Drake. Like this happens. Bare naked ladies, who? What? No. It's all about Drake. <laughs> um, so that's really interesting that you talk about like how black culture and that that cultural fluency um positioned you to be able to make this kind of move and you know the fact that you had done all of this work and that you had done you know you you'd actually you had the receipts so to speak so that when people came knocking you had things to show them but what do you do you have any words that you could maybe say to somebody who is you know really unsure about making that change or you know we have a lot of people who do really amazing tiktoks because i have a friend that that's what she does all day she just sends me tiktok videos and they're always really incredibly creative people who are using this technology to like build communities but they don't see how to turn that into you know something that gives them more than just status um how how would you as somebody you know looked upon as as a leader in this area how would you talk to somebody or how would you coach somebody who is maybe interesting interested in making that pivot to say all of this great stuff that you're producing is bankable and this is how you do it to me the biggest advantage is you know growing up in in tennessee slash georgia like hustling was a thing that we that i grew up with at least um yeah. i mean i knew plenty of folks that sold popsicles and candy out of their you know out of the window of their house my one of my favorite places to ever get a catfish sandwich was out of a, a little old lady's house where her son was like they go fishing in the morning and they sell the catfish that they caught in the afternoon for like two dollars <laughs> so like straight up hustling was a thing that we've always had because we had to do it and I think that nowadays, the the idea of hustle is still there. We see it, mm -hmm. but it's different. It looks different. And fortunately for you know folks coming into the industry now, they can take advantage of that because the industry doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, one of my mm. mentors in the DevRel space, most popular for the TikToks that they make, like answering questions from folks that are trying to get into the developer space just sits there and write does tiktoks all day and i'm like that is awesome you get paid a six-figure salary to do tiktoks when there are plenty of people out there that are trying to make six figures doing nothing but tiktoks so and, yeah and it's you have to think of it that way i mean that was 
one of the things that that I chose to do was be upfront and honest about what my goals were. And it was, I want to make sure that the kids growing up in Sweetwater, Tennessee, where I grew up for a long time in my life, being told the only way you're getting out of the out of this town is either going to a correctional facility, a body bag, or the town next to it, that those aren't your only options. And what you can do, that same hustle that you have to say, I'm going to make it out of, you know, little bitty Tennessee towns, you can apply that and think about how it's going to change the way an industry works. Right now, all the developer advocates, all the people that I'm supposed, that are my peers, everyone is locked down. We used to get paid to travel all over the world and give talks at conferences and all that stuff. Ain't nobody talking unless it's on a Zoom connection. So how do we make sure that our Zoom calls always look a little bit better? How do we make sure that we're still able to reach the people that we would reach at conferences, but instead of on a stage, we're doing it on Twitter, on Instagram, on on those things. Well, maybe not Instagram. I don't use Instagram. I'm by Facebook, that whole thing. But for me, my goal has always been, I want to show, I want to share the message of diversity in tech. I want to amplify that message. I want to show that black and brown folks out there can do this job and do it better than anyone else. So how do I do that? Well, the first thing that I do is amplify all the voices that are going to one day put me out of a job because maybe they'll show some pity on me and let me hang around. But I have to continue to work for them. And the fact that I'm doing that on behalf of the company that I work for, I just flat out tell them, look, these are going to be the future of this industry. You need to invest in them and fortunate kind of like what you said in in the interview you know you worked for a job that wanted to take advantage of a particular group and or sorry you were working for a company that was taking advantage of a group and you said i don't like how this is looking i'm going to leave that industry and the way that i spun it to them was this is an opportunity for you to be on the forefront when as malcolm x would say the chickens come home to roost Right. So when that happens, (laughs) you get to say, hey, we've been doing this since before the next black person got unfortunately killed by the hands of a police officer. And as much as it sucks to to point it that way, I also doubled our diversity spend in one quarter. So I kind of see that as a win-win. My people are being fed. The bag is being secured. But on top of that, I'm now giving more opportunities for those folks that I want to see in the industry to actually see that there is an industry for them. But what, like, what's the cost to you personally? Because one of the things that I've been really uh, fixated on lately, um, ever since I watched um, the black church on PBS is that this feeling of you've always, you have a moral responsibility to, advance you have a moral and and what that advance whatever that advancement looks like um because in that advancement and and what's unspoken is like you're advancing the race i know that people don't really say that anymore but that feeling of obligation that you have um that you've got to reach back behind you and make sure that you're pulling up the next person and then they're pulling up the next person and then they're pulling up the next person what is the physical emotional 
spiritual cost to you as somebody who understands that this work needs to happen um, and is not only understands that this work needs to happen, but is making this work happen? The, the physical cost has been one of a lot of anxiety, <laughs> um, probably physical and mental. I, I will say that I make my job harder than it has to be sometime. Uh, a good yeah. example of this is doing a YouTube series where I actually showcase people speaking in, in their native language instead of forcing them to speak in broken English. Right. And making it harder for our video team to edit. Because they go, oh, well, you know, I don't speak Portuguese or I don't speak Arabic or, you know, I don't speak German. And it's like, well, tough are the people that we interviewed do. And it's easier for me to ask them the question in English, have them speak in their native language. And then if we need to get a translator involved, we'll get a translator involved. And yeah. again, it, it, it does come with the cost of maybe getting a label of being a little hard to work with or a little unrelenting at times, um, or even a little expensive. You know, that's that's my favorite. I get, po I get positional. That's what I get. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that. I think people will be like, is that a good thing? I was like, well, it is what it is. So I, I, I tend to be expensive. That That's what I tell people is like, working nice. with me comes nice. at a cost. So, and and I mean, that's a thing. Like, I'm not, I'm not always going to be the loudest voice in the room. Um, I think there's a what's there's a saying it's like real ninjas move in silence. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so like that whole that whole mindset is very much like I'm gonna build it instead of like, hey, we all have to give a talk on topic X. Okay, cool. I'm gonna build a diversity app that helps people in tech find groups where they feel like they belong and all the people around them look like them. But I'm gonna use I'm gonna use topic X. So I, I still I met the requirement. I'm still there, but you know, when when people listen to this talk, they realize like, oh, topic X isn't necessarily the focal point. Well, the real focal point is this other thing here. You've been hoodwinked, been bamboozled. <laughs> Basically, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what it is. But but like you said, it, it comes it comes at the cost of, you know. Luckily, my boss is dope. I will say my boss is dope. She is like totally on board with all the things that I do. And I say like, it's going to cost money. And she's like, yeah, don't worry about that part. That's my job. But I will say like, there is a lot of discussion now that is like, hey, why why did we use this particular topic? Uh, you know, for instance, what, we're talking about data framing and data science and data analysis and all this stuff. Why are we analyzing police call records with it? Why not? Mm -hmm. You can do it. Why not? I you didn't you didn't tell me I had to pick a particular piece of data to to analyze. You just said analyze some data, so I did. <laughs> ask for ask for forgiveness, not permission. Oh, I don't even ask for forgiveness. I'm just like, hey, it happened. <laughs> like, it happened. We can't change it. So how how we want to move forward? <laughs> It must be nice to have that kind of power, though. So, I mean, because like a lot of people, you know, people in my line of work would not have that kind of power. It was, it was like my my modus operandi has always been sort of like, I'm just going to go here and I'm going to do it. And then if it, and if it pops and like everybody loves it, then I'll say something about it. If it doesn't and like I'm falling flat, nobody will ever know. <laughs> but but I, if I'm honest, I mean, that that was 
me at my old job. It was, I'm going to do this thing. As, as a marketer, I would put people of color in our stuff, like all the different pamphlets and things like that. And I would just like sneak it in and no one, like people, oh, hey, that's an interesting picture. And it's like, oh, interesting is the word. Okay. And then it, it came the it came to a head when I, I put a woman in a hijab at a coffee shop in it once. They're like, whoa, hold on now. Something's going on. And I was like, <laughs> go ahead, say it. Say it. I, I, I want you to tell me why I can't use this image. And once that happens, it's like, oh, oh, this is a problem person. Hold on. We need to we need to do something about this. And it's like, no, I did my job exactly as it was asked. And if you want me to change the the imagery, I'm more than happy to change it after I hear you say you don't want to depict, you know, women of color, particularly people of the Muslim faith to in your literature, your literature, because quite frankly, some of the people that you sell to might have a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. That is brilliant. That's like, that is such a baller move though. I mean, it's, I, 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 I just go back to, you know, I think about young kids because we don't, we don't often have interns at the library, but we did have some interns recently. And I think about, you know, that cost and how to be that kind of a baller within the kind of constraints that you have and, and how do you find it? How do you find it within yourself to just be that baller? Is it because of virtue of your title or your position or is it, you know, does it come from you having been in the Marine Corps? Uh, like where does it come from to just have that, that, that initiative and that willingness to just be be the one to step out there and say, yeah, I'll take that. I'll be the troublemaker if it means that we're going to be able to move forward. I, I will say a part of it was also how, you know, I was, I don't want to say how I was raised. Um, my role models growing up were not those same folks that were winding up in jail and are incarcerated or whatever, whether it was for right. good or ill. They were playing the game and they were playing it to win. Um, my uncle, like I am, I'm happy to say I have an uncle that owns a studio that was formerly owned by Motown. Like nice. when, when I say like playing the game to win it, had a plan, executed the plan. Me joining the military was having a plan and executing the plan. I didn't want to go to college. I knew the military was another option. If I was going to get into the military, I needed to score high enough on the ASVABs that I could get into technology and not in you know, motor T or, you know, infantry or whatever. So I came in and they basically handed the book to me and said, you pick a job. And it was okay. Again, if I'm going to play the game, I'm going to play the game to win. And the thing that gave me the confidence where I'm at now was knowing that I made it. Um, I think that was, that was probably the big step was I got here how I got here and not by following anybody's rules. So that meant that there was someone out there that was interested in me doing what I'm doing. So I'm going to double down on that with the belief that if there was one person out there that wanted to see me doing this, I will find another and I will make it work. But again, it's not doing it with a level of cockiness. It's doing it with a level of confidence and also understanding that again i can't i can't necessarily say hey company i used to work with why y'all racist but what i can do is say <laughs> please tell me why there's a problem with this person of color on this brochure hmm. 
So forcing the being being willing to force the uncomfortable conversations is yeah. is key, you think, to your success. I that, think that just runs counter to every piece of professional advice I have ever been given. And think, you have just being, my mind has just gone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's being comfortable with bringing with bringing up the topic and knowing that if that conversation is had, it's not you that's going to look bad. It, yeah. and, and I think that's the thing, you know. What I do now, I mean, I'm I'm responsible for our diversity initiative, and and the difference is, I might be the only black person on my team. I'm not the only rep- minority in tech on my team. Our entire team are women in tech or people of color, and mm-hmm. to me, it's like, all right, cool. We got we got like the the underrepresented X Men here, like. Let's <laughs> let's see what we can to find some more mutants and get make sure they're taken care of. And people are like, "Can we do that?" Like, "Oh, we have this budget," and it's like that budget is nothing. That is that is a, a public press release saying that we care about diversity. That is not showing it. So here's what we're gonna do: we're just going to take the money that is normally allotted for this one thing, and we're gonna make sure that that one thing always has a diversity spin on it. And if we can't do it all the time, we're going to do it at least once more than we did the last time. And we're going to keep doing it once more and once more until we say, hey, we only allotted $20,000 this year for diversity, but we spent 40. How how about this time you just give us the 40 so that way we can spend 60 and then we'll just keep doing that until eventually we have a real budget that we can work with so that when companies say, hey, you know, our diversity initiative requires a sponsorship of however much we can go. Okay, cool. That's no problem. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. Um, I guess the last question that I would ask you, and I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this question before, but what's a question that you wish people would ask you in interviews that no one ever has? I think the, it, are we talking about like a job interview or just like a podcast? Like on a podcast okay. or yeah. Yeah. Like on a podcast or something like that. Um, oh, that's a, I, I don't know. Like, give me, give me a, give me one second on that. I okay. think, I think the one question that I would ask is who got left behind mm. in that event? Okay. Cause, cause I, I'll be honest, like I've lost friends. I mean, I, I moved across the country um, there are folks that I lost in the military. There are folks that just lost their minds in the military. Um, I don't have any names, but I will say the people that the people that got left behind. One, if you're listening to this, hi, come tell me, like message me. <laughs> I'm still here, but but also like I want to help. And, and I think yeah. that that's, you know, all, all of these questions at the end of the day just come back to, I want to help. How can I help? Let me help you. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I'm going to be real sappy. Uh, one of my favorite scenes is actually from the notebook where, you know, he just flat out says, you're a pain in the ass to deal with. What do you want? <laughs> like, what, what is it that you want? <laughs> Because I think that a lot of a lot of the 
success, how limited I feel like it's been. I mean, I feel like I'm at the the start of the the journey, the start of the story, not the end. A lot of that has been me just being vocal about this is what I want. What does it take to get there? And when someone gave me some stupid answer like, hey, you need to go back to school and get a college degree. It's like, nah, we're not going to do that. Give me another option. And they said, well, we don't have another option for you. So, well, I guess we're making an option. Because hmm. at the end of the day, it's like, if I got to take it down piece by piece and say, how do I get this far? Okay, let me do that. How do I get this far? Let me do that. Oh, these people don't think I can do it. Well, unfortunately, they got to get left behind. Or these people are still stuck on whatever it is they were doing. Unfortunately, I got to keep moving. They got to, they can either come with me or they can stay where they're at. And most of those people, they stay where they're at. And I'm more than happy to help bring them to where I'm at. And I, like I said, I don't even think where I'm at is all that great. I've got much bigger plans. But you have to be willing, you have to be willing to identify where you want to go and look for paths. And if you can't find any, start cutting your own. I mean, it, it it's that simple. Like it is, it is straight up the, the folks that made it often didn't make it taking the path that was most traveled. It is, they took the path that everyone was like, why are you doing that? And then it made sense down the road. And then all of a sudden everybody else started wanting to copy the same thing that they were doing. Right. So, right. So, I mean, the, the message, the message, I guess, would be like those people that got left behind, you aren't left behind. I'm not, I'm, I'm not old. Like I'm 31. <laughs> like we got, I got time. I got plenty of time left and I got plenty of trouble to start. But, you know, like, like former Congressman Lewis said, make sure it's good trouble, good, honest trouble. Yeah. That's, that's all we're doing. We're just starting some good, honest trouble. I think that's a great place to stop because it's, I, I don't, I can't top it. You probably can, but I certainly can't top no. it. <laughs> I can't, I, like I said, blackout, start talking, come back. Like that's, <laughs> that's my flow. All right. I will, I will stop recordings there then. We'll, we'll do that. That was so much fun. I really enjoyed this. It was.